Our text for today comes from Luke 7, verses 18 through 23. John's disciples told him about these, all these things, calling two of them. He sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who uh, is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated, unless you are an elementary student, and then you can follow me upstairs. All right. While all the elementary kids are getting there, I'm going to just raise this a little bit. I put, uh, I put Sesame Street on my phone for my son so that he would be quiet, and my wife just took it away from him. So, you know, if you get Sesame Street stolen from you, uh, you would cry like that as well, all right? So just cut him a little bit of slack, will you? Um, <laughs> good morning. Are you loose this morning? Are you ready for church? I feel like everybody walked in a little tired. The, the, the time change was last week. Um, I was up, uh, I stayed up probably a little later than I should have because I, I was all excited about Iowa winning the basketball game. Um, if you're into that type of thing, I am. Um, so also, uh, if you're wondering where I'm going to be at 1110 uh, on Monday, it's not going to be at church. So I'm going to take an early lunch and I'm going to watch a basketball game. So if you need me, feel free to text. Um, I don't know why we went there, but we did. Uh, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Um, so before we get into the message this morning, I just wanted to uh, emphasize one quick thing that is, uh, that is on the horizon that we just want to make everybody aware of. On the week after Easter, so that would be April uh, 9th and 10th, we are going to begin uh, renovating our kids' space downstairs. You know, uh, pre-COVID, we could have anywhere up to like 42 kids, I think we had here one Sunday. Uh, and we want to be prepared and ready for that uh, uh, in the coming months. And so uh, we're going to be renovating our kids' space. Um, and so what that looks like for our church is that uh, we said to the contractors who are going to be doing the work for us, uh, we will do the demolition. So we're going to knock down walls. Does anybody enjoy knocking down walls? No one? Okay, that's fine. Um, we're going to do the demolition here, and then uh, we'll have a company come in and do the finishes and make it look nice, because I don't know about you, but I don't have faith in my ability. Uh, excuse me. I don't have faith in my ability to make something look really nice. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. We need your help. We need your help. If you're an able-bodied person and you have the resource to come help us either Friday night, the 9th, or the 10th on Saturday, uh, we're going to be uh, knocking down some walls and creating space for what we hope uh, will be a really, really nice kid space. And so that's the first thing. If you uh, haven't already circled that on your calendars and you're not busy that weekend, please uh, make that a priority uh, because it would be very, very helpful to us. So that's number one. And the second thing is we have uh, set aside resource for that. We've saved up money and we've allocated some resource to do that work. Um, excuse me. I had a little tiny cold this weekend and that's why the, um, that's why the water's up here with me. Um, 
But there are some things that we want to do that we don't have the resource to do. And so we just wanted to uh, make you aware of that. Uh, one of the things that we want to have done down there, excuse me, more water, thank you. Topo Chico, do your work. Um, uh, there are a few things we want to do that we can't. Um, excuse me, my goodness. Apparently, somebody doesn't want me to talk about this. Um, we are going to begin, uh, we, one of the things that we want to do down there is that we want to renovate the bathrooms, and we don't have the resource to do that currently. And so, as part of that, <clears throat> we just wanted to create some space uh, for you to possibly, if you feel so moved, to give to that renovation work that we're going to do in the basement. Uh, we, uh, we just wanted to let you know that if there's any uh, gift that you want to give over and above uh, in the coming weeks, that you can do that and you can allocate that directly to our, uh, <coughs> our renovation plan. And we will, uh, we will make sure that that uh, resource goes directly uh, to that project. All right? All right. Now let's see if we can make it through today, shall we? All right. Huh. Oh, do we have a lozenge? Oh, what a brilliant man you are. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Bruce. I'm going to stick this in my cheek, and we're going to pretend that, that I don't have a problem. Shall we? All right. <clears throat> I will say, in, um, in COVID-19 time, a pastor who constantly coughs up on stage is not a great... Thing, it's not a it's not a really good church growth model. Um, just know that this is a cold. I got it from my son Amos. So, <clears throat> anyways, let's get into it, shall we? There is a phrase that I repeat to myself, kind of on the regular. It helps me modulate on days where I'm not feeling that great. And the phrase is this. The distance between expectation and reality is disappointment. Have you ever heard this phrase before? The distance between my expectations of how a day should go and the reality of the way in which that day is going usually results in some amount of disappointment. It's a little phrase that actually helps me kind of find my equilibrium in a day. You know, most days I wake up happy. I'm one of those people who wakes up positively. I roll out of bed with a fair amount of energy. I usually get a cup of coffee in my hand. I go to the kitchen sink. I look at the birds at the bird feeder uh, that are outside of that window. And I think to myself, this is going to be a great day. There, there's nothing that can happen that can go wrong today. And then 2.30 hits, right? How do you feel at 2.30 in the afternoon? And I realized that this day is not going to be the world-shaking, totally tremendous day that I thought it was going to be at 6.30 in the morning. Was anybody with me? Instead, this day is just going to be a normal day, right? Uh, with its normal victories and its normal challenges and its normal concerns. And usually between like 2.30 and 5, so it's that time, really I should just have a snack and it would probably be okay, but... Between 2.30 and 5, if I find myself getting a little discouraged, uh, it's because my expectations for the day didn't line up with reality. The truth is usually that it has not been a bad day, right? 
or I've uh, been able to get some stuff done, it's just not been earth-shatteringly positive. And because of that, it kind of falls short of my expectations. And that's okay. Most days aren't tremendous, right? Most days are just days, and that's fine. <clears throat> but you see, my disappointment stems from the distance that exists between what I think, what I think personally should happen and what is actually going on. My expectations are here in the morning, right? And my reality comes in somewhere down here. Now, here's what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that in order to live a happy life, you need to live with low expectations all the time, right? That's not what I'm saying. We don't need a bunch of Eeyores in this world, right? Who just are constantly lowering people's expectations and thinking that that's the key. But I think this is a big part of what it means to become a mature person, a mature person, a healthy person. Part of the journey of becoming both spiritually and emotionally mature is learning to navigate disappointment, right? Is learning to deal with disappointment. Learning that my perception of how life, how I think life should, quote-unquote, function, isn't always going to pan out, right? The universe, it turns out, is not going to conform to my desires all of the time, right? Even though it should. And we all would affirm that. Uh, because here's the thing, my perception or my opinion about how things should go, and this is just humility speaking, my, my opinion about how things should go is not always right or good. I know it's hard for us to get, to get through to that reality, but it's true, isn't it? My opinion and my, uh, my feelings about what should happen in the world is not the capital T truth of the world. And so we have to go on this process of learning in a world that will not always conform to our expectations how to be content in the midst of those circumstances. Even in the learning to be content even in the midst of very difficult and dis disappointing circumstances, it turns out that in order to be a spiritually and emotionally healthy person, we have to develop the spiritual discipline of contentment. The spiritual discipline of contentment. Is any, could anybody use a little bit more contentment in their life, right? It turns out that this is something we can cultivate in our lives. Uh, this is what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. Here's what he says. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to, be, to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who, who strengthens me. And Jesus himself teaches us that there's a way of abiding in him that leads to a kind of non-anxious presence in the world. As we move through the world, not expecting that it would conform to our expectations or wants, but rather that we move through the world vitally connected to God through Christ, understanding that what we experience in this world might not always meet our expectations, but is a place where we can meet God. 
This is a discipline that we can learn, and it seems to be held out in the scriptures as something we can cultivate in our lives. But here's the problem. This is a struggle, right? This is very easy to say. It is very, very, very hard to do. You know, I'm not arguing that we all need to be like Zen masters who just kind of like ohm our way through our days, right? Letting nothing touch us, just being kind of these impassable creatures who don't have emotion or experience. But this is a discipline that we can learn. But the question is, how do we learn that discipline? How do we learn the discipline of contentment? Right? It's an interesting question. In our teaching text for today, John the Baptist, a man that Jesus calls the greatest man to ever live, the greatest person to have ever put on sandals and walked around in the desert and eaten locusts, uh, it, it faces his own disappointment. He faces a, a crisis of unmet expectations in this gospel story that we read out of chapter 7 of Luke's gospel. Only his case is a lot more extreme than when Starbucks is out of cold brew uh, at 2.30, and, and I think that that is what's going to get me through the rest of the day, right? His, his experience is far more intense than what we usually experience, and yet we see in this story Jesus pushing him towards something, a way of being, even in the midst of his expectations not being met in an extreme way. So, a little background is helpful for us to understand really what's going on in this teaching text today. When we pick up the story in John 7, John has set two of his disciples to ask Jesus an important question. He sent two of his disciples ahead of him, or for him, and they ask him this question. Beginning in verse 18, we read this. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, hold that question in your mind for a moment. <clears throat> now, Luke does not tell us this. We can pick this up from the context of some of the other Gospels that we read this story represented in as well. But we know the reason that John does not go and ask this question himself. Why it is that he sends two of his disciples to ask the question of Jesus. And the reason is, John's in prison. Actually, John's on death row, awaiting execution. He has, been, he has just challenged Herod, or who was the king of Judea at the time. He has ch challenged Herod. He's actually called out some sin in Herod's life. And he made Herod's wife really mad because he did this. And so they together had taken John and put him in prison and were eventually going to behead him. Now, Herod held this authority in, this, in the region of Judea. The, the, he was functionally called the king of the Jews. And he was there because the Romans had placed him and his family in this position. You see, the Romans in this day had a policy of allowing people people that they ruled, to have their own leadership, but only if that leadership could be, it could be assured that that leadership would bow to the will of Rome. And so, John sends his disciples in the middle of this 
incredibly distressing situation for him. He is in prison, awaiting executions at the hands of a corrupt puppet Jewish king. This is what is happening in this passage. And this is really uh, quite helpful for us to understand the context of the question that John's disciples ask Jesus. All right? And so just one more time, and I believe we have it on the screen. This is the question that, they, that John's disciples ask. Are you the one who is to come? In Greek, that is just two words. Are you the coming one? Are you the coming one? Now, this question isn't just a question that John had. It's actually a quotation of a very, very famous psalm. It's a quotation from Psalm uh, 118, verses 26. Now, this psalm in John and in Jesus' day is really important. There, there's a series of psalms from 113 to 118 that are referred to in the, in the Psalter as the Hillel Psalms. These are psalms that were written or, or were sung and recited on holy days. Uh, specifically, Psalm 118 was recited, is recited in Pas- uh, during Passover. <clears throat> and in Jesus and John's day, Psalm 118 uh, took on a kind of prophetic significance as they were, as they, as the people of Israel will, were living under uh, the, this oppressive Roman regime. It, it took on a kind of prophetic significance because it was a song about the king. It was a song about what the king, who the king was, and what the king would do. It began to take on uh, prophetic messianic significance. It was a it was a psalm that the people of Israel held tight to and said, "When the King comes, when the Messiah comes, when the Deliverer comes, this is what He's going to be like. He will be the one who is to come." And so, all of these hopes and fears and expectations are tied up in this question that John asks Jesus. It would go something like this: If you were to kind of Uh, smooth out this question and make it make sense to us. Are you the one who is to come, David's son, the one one who will deliver Israel from her overlords? This is the question that John is asking. And he's asking it because he's like, I'm in prison, and I don't much like the things that are happening to me. I don't want things to turn out this way. I thought, Jesus, you were the one. I've even said it, right? John said that to Jesus. John thinks that if Jesus were truly the Messiah, he would not be in his current troubling situation because Jesus would have done the work of delivering the people of Israel out from this political oppression that they were experiencing. <clears throat> if you remember earlier in the story, John, the, John actually goes and baptizes Jesus, or Jesus comes to John and is baptized in the Jordan. And John witnesses um, miracles that take place after that baptism. When John first sees Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, he has this supernatural insight to Jesus' identity, and he calls him out as the Messiah. John, more than anyone in the world, if there was anyone that should have known who Jesus really was, it was John. And yet, in prison, Awaiting his execution, John can't help but doubt that Jesus actually is the Messiah. The greatest man ever born of a woman is doubting who Jesus is. That just gives me hope, personally, just FYI. Uh, Because I doubt it sometimes. I know I'm not supposed to say that because I'm a pastor. But I do, right? When I run into difficult times, uh, when I'm... uh, 
<clears throat> I experience moments of doubt, seasons of doubt. And when I know that the greatest man ever born of a woman was in that space too, I go, well, I'm in good company, right? That's just a sidebar. Anyways, <clears throat> but at this moment in the story, John sits in prison. His expectations are falling desperately short of his reality. And, and in this moment, Jesus chooses to respond to John's question. But Jesus' response is fascinating, actually. And it's a little technical, but it's very, very interesting. Look how Jesus responds to John's question. In verse 21, we see this. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So Jesus is presented with this question, are you the one? Are you the coming one? And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say anything at first, right? He just turns and sets to work. He's like, oh, you, wanna, you wonder who I am? Bang, 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 bang. Like, look at all these healed people, right? It's kind of an interesting way of answering a question. He swings into action. And in a sense, his response to the question is found in his, in his response to the question is found in what he does in verse 21. But he doesn't stop there. The, the text tells us that he does that in verse 21, but then in verse 22, he goes and he actually replies to the messengers and says this, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. <clears throat> now, what's interesting about Jesus' response to John here is that it is not an original response. And if you're familiar with the scriptures, if you spend any time in them, you can you kind of pick that up, that Jesus isn't just pulling this from the top of his head. Jesus' response to John is actually a mashup of two uh, different passages in the prophetic book of Isaiah. So Jesus takes two passages from Isaiah, he mashes them together and uses them as the way that he responds to John, which is fascinating. The first passage he uses is from Isaiah 35. Now in Isaiah 35, Isaiah is talking about the ways in which God is going to perform a new exodus that God is going to lead the people of Israel through the desert and back to Zion again. And so Jesus starts with that, that what I'm doing here, and he's, and he's communicating this because he knows John will know, right? What, he, what he's communicating here is a kind of new exodus, that God is once more going to lead his people back to Zion, that, they're going to, that there's going to be some type of procession or uh, release into freedom. But the second passage that he quotes is Isaiah 61 as well. This mashup of uh, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 is fascinating. But I wanted to put Isaiah 61 up on the screen for you just so you can see a little bit. Because the second half of what Jesus says is all Isaiah 61. It says this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to build up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, to proclaim freedom to the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. So you see what Jesus is saying here, right? This Isaiah 61 passage is a messianic promise <clears throat> that Isaiah prophesies and that was held out in Jesus' day as a messianic promise. 
this is what the scholar Richard Hayes says about these two uh, Isaiah passages being put together. He says this, by evoking these Isaiah texts, Jesus offers a scriptural interpretive framework for the miraculous deeds that John's disciples have seen him perform. And he invites John to draw the appropriate conclusions. That, that passage should signal to John or any hearer steeped in Israel's scriptures that Jesus' activities in, uh, indeed must be understood as the inauguration of the coming kingdom of God in which Israel had lo- for which Israel had longed and for which John was waiting. <clears throat> but I want you to notice one quick thing here. Jesus stops short in this passage of quoting the last part of Isaiah 61, doesn't he? So the last part of Isaiah 61 says this, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Now, scholars debate this, but some argue that Jesus intentionally leaves off the end of Isaiah 61 as a means of communicating to John that, John, I am the one you think I am, but you're not going to get out of prison. I am the one you think I am, but this is not going to end the way you want it to, which is fascinating, isn't it? And I think that while that can feel harsh to us, Jesus' concluding remark in this passage of Scripture communicates the heart with which I think Jesus communicates this to John. In verse 23, Jesus says this, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. I think this statement is is a statement of compassion. Jesus is kind of reaching out to John here. Blessed is he who does not stumble on account of this thing. It's almost like he's saying to John, John, I know this is hard to hear. I know this doesn't match up with what you want or what you thought your life was going to look like. But please don't stumble over this. Jesus' actions will not meet up with John's expectation. Jesus is not going to overthrow the Herodians. He's not going to kick out the Romans. He's not going to take political power and get John off death row. It's just not going to happen. But Jesus' Jesus' actions will not fulfill John's expectations. But Jesus' actions will meet John's deepest need. He may not meet John's expectations, but he will meet his deepest need. Jesus will come, will not come as a conquering hero like many in his day believed the Messiah would from Psalm 118 and other psalms like that. Jesus, but Jesus was going to inaugurate the kingdom of God. He was going to, and he was going to do it in a way that no one expected him to do it. You see, John thought his deepest need was to be delivered from prison and death. For Herod and the Romans to be overthrown. For God's people to be politically free from oppression. But Jesus knew that John's deepest need and our deepest need was for him to go to the cross. To do for us what we could not do to ourselves, for ourselves. You see, Jesus was establishing the kingdom of God. That's exactly what he was doing. He was inaugurating our freedom. He was just doing it in the most unexpected way possible. And in the same way that John, 
that that Jesus was not uh, was not going to fill John's expectations. God is not concerned with meeting your expectations. He's interested in fulfilling your deepest need, which is kind of a hard thing to hear, isn't it? What do you mean he's not interested in fulfilling my expectations? I thought he wants to give me every good gift. Just hold on for one moment here. It's not that God doesn't want you to be joyful. He does. He's not, it's not that he doesn't want you to have your heart's desire. He does. It's not because all of your dreams or hopes are bad. They're not. Actually, God does want to give you the desires of your hearts. But you see, Jesus is not concerned with meeting your expectations. He is interested, first and foremost, in meeting you in your place of deepest need. And this all stems back to this idea that Jesus knows what we need better than we know what we need. If you've been a parent, you know this, right? Right? You know what that feeling, when you know what is best, but that little creature thinks you are, you, what the thing you are doing to them is the po- worst possible thing, right? We know this. Now, what, again, what I'm not saying is that everything, uh, everything bad that happens in this world or that happens to us, God is doing. I don't believe that. But what I know is that when we catch a vision of this, when we catch a vision of this idea that God is not concerned with meeting our expectations of how our lives should work out or what is, what is right or best for us, but is rather concerned with fulfilling our deepest need, well, when we catch a vision of this, we catch a vision of God's heart. Because God is not a big slot machine in the sky where we say the prayer and we pull the arm and we get the tokens. God is a father. He's a father. And he can't be manipulated. He can't be coerced. He cares about you, and he wants the best for you, but he's willing to go odd ways to get there. And sometimes what is best for you is not the thing that you think is best for you. All right? Is anybody with me? If you're not, that's okay. Because it's true, and you'll deal with it later. Um, It's not always the thing that's best for you. And coming to, coming to grips with this is not about going, it's not about going every, every time somebody cuts you off in traffic, going, God did that because he wants to make me okay with people who cut me off in traffic. No. But, but it is about learning contentment in the, in the midst of difficult situations, knowing that in the midst of those situations, God very well might be working to bring about within you what you truly need rather than what you want. Right? You see, life is a kind of crucible, isn't it? It's hard. The older I get, the harder it is. And I'm going, what is going on with this life thing? Right? But the truth of the matter is, is that if we, if we come to this understanding of God's heart and his character, if we come to view God as a good father, if we come to see God as having the, the heart or the compassion that Jesus has for John in this passage, for us in our lives, what we learn is that no matter how difficult our circumstances might be, we can rest safe in the arms of a God who we know loves us. And that even if things 
end up not the way we want them to, even if the chemo doesn't work, even if something tragic occurs, that God's goodness and his grace are always for us and towards us. And that even if we die, there's a resurrection. There's a promise. There's a hope. And as hard as that is for us to handle sometimes, it is true. You see, so many of the great saints who have gone before us have learned that the secret to contentment is not in getting everything you want, right? If you get everything you want, it will eat you from the inside out. It will. If, if, if I got that Tesla I really want that bad, right, it might just wreck me. It might just wreck me. But the truth of the matter is, is that God wants what is best for me. Joss, if you could come up. God wants what is best for me. But he doesn't want what necessarily what I want for me. <laughs> and that is a hard lesson to learn. But as we grow in faith and in trust, as we, as we, uh, as we learn that the character of God is best represented to us in the person of Jesus and the, and the, and the, the character of God and the image of God that we have in our minds becomes more and more real to us over time, We've come to this place like the Apostle Paul came to, where we can say, I've been in plenty and I've been in want, but in all of those circumstances, I found the secret to contentment. And that contentment is that I trust in a God who I know loves me and wants what's best for me. And even if this whole life situation doesn't pan out quite the way I think it should pan out, he's still there. And he's still all of that I need. And I was struggling with this message this week because, like I said, I know it's true, but it doesn't always feel hopeful. But then I was like, oh, yes, it does. Imagine with me for one moment that you are not all alone in the universe. That there is a God who loves you so much that he's not going to let you wreck your own life if you submit it to him. It might not look exactly like you want it to, but he's going to do the work in, in the midst of that difficulty to bring about the you that you need you to be, right? If you submit your life to him, if you trust him, if you give over in this act of gracious love, those things that you hold tightly in your heart to a God who we know loves you and I. That's a hopeful message, isn't it? It doesn't always feel hopeful in the midst of a difficult time. It doesn't always feel hopeful in the midst of uh, a bad day at 245 when things haven't gone your way. But it's true. It's true. And so this morning, as we uh, conclude, I just want to stand together. Would you stand with me? And I just want to pray that God would help us a little bit further down the path of being people who would learn to be content in his loving arms. That would learn to take what life sends our way with grace and with gratitude to a God who loves us. And that we would know, even when it feels hard, even when it feels dark, even when it feels like God's not there, 
He's in the midst of that thing, working everything together for our good. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you that you are better than we could hope for or imagine. That you are not interested in just giving us the spiritual equivalent of sugary candy, but rather you are a God who longs to give us good gifts and that you are more concerned with what we need than what we want. And so God, I pray for my friends who are in the midst of a difficult season, who are struggling in their own hearts and minds, who might be feeling a little depressed or discouraged. I pray for them today. I don't necessarily pray that that thing would be over immediately, but I do pray, God, that in the midst of that difficult season, that they would experience you as a loving father, as somebody who is close to them and present with them in the midst of the difficulty they are experiencing, and that they would learn in the midst of that difficult season to offer that period of time up to you, to surrender it to you as a means of allowing you to work in and through it. God, you know us. You search our hearts. And you know where we are. And so, God, I pray that you would meet each of us in that place, wherever it is we are, this, where we are this morning. And that you would be faithful to us, even in our desert times. You'd be faithful to us on the mountaintop, and you'd be faithful to us in the valley. And Jesus, as we look ahead in two weeks to Easter, God, might we know that because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, our difficult situation, whatever it might be, is not the last word. It is not. And so we cling to the reality and the power of the resurrection this morning as the anchor of our faith in the person of Jesus. And we pray it all in that name, in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. All right. All right. Thanks for being at church today. Uh, if you brought a gift and you want to place it in the box on your way out, you can do that. Uh, next week is Palm Sunday. So we'll be, we'll be, uh, we'll be waving palm branches in the air. All right. To next week. So be sure to be back here next week. Go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.